Good afternoon, and welcome to the Central Library of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. We're very, very pleased to have all of you here today for a very, very special event as part of our Women's History Month celebration. Now, as you know, our special guest today is Making History, and we are so, so honored to have her here today. She's the longest-serving woman in the United States Senate. She's a lifelong patron of the Pratt Library. And, of course, she's a favorite daughter of Baltimore, our dear friend, Senator Barbara Mikulski. Hi, everybody. First of all, I would um, like to thank the Pratt Library for inviting me here today. Uh, for Women's History Month, to Dr. Carla Hayden, Baltimore's own all-star. Uh, we're so pleased to have her leading our Enoch Pratt Library. Uh, she is uh, literally and internationally known uh, in the field of library and information services. She's certainly a star uh, on the uh, American scene. And coming out of Chicago, she knew this tall, lanky guy named Barack Obama and his sweet girlfriend named Michelle long before we even knew how to spell Barack Obama, let alone say it. But uh, though, though she continues to be a Chicago sports fan, uh, she is a great leader and asset to us. And Dr. Hayden, we thank you for what you do here every day in opening, keeping the doors of our library open and what it means to people. And I'll be talking about that in a minute. Then to Professor Antonia Keene, uh, my friend, my colleague, uh, she's quite modest here. She's a professor at Loyola College, uh, teaches sociology there. Um, she has been voted Teacher of the Year at that college on many of occasions, and she's been a very dear friend of mine and was my very first campaign manager when I challenged the political bosses and won uh, the Baltimore City Council. So she said that when she was going to write the introduction, I said, keep it simple, and remember, we're on iPod, which means we're going to be uh, recorded forever. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I tell you, it was a big surprise to me that in the middle of my campaign uh, this summer, I got a call from the Library of Congress. And here's what the Library of Congress said to me, another library that's trying to be as good as Enoch Pratt. And what they said was, if you're reelected, you will become the longest-serving woman in the United States Senate in American history. You, yes, you are now a historic figure. And we want artifacts from you. Well, I didn't know what that meant. First of all, to me, a historic figure was somebody like Abigail Adams or Dolly Madison or Martha Washington making her chocolates uh, while George was away fighting the revolution. And all I could see was those little kind of bonnets that the Bronte sisters wore, and so did Abigail, and crinolines. And I, had, I fought hard enough to wear pants on the Senate floor. I wasn't going to wear crinolines to any big event. But now I find myself a historic figure, uh, to my great surprise. But for me, it's not how long I've served, it's how well I've served. 
And along the way, nobody gets here by themselves. Any of us who've achieved public life uh, and longstanding support of the voters have had the support of many people. I've had the wonderful support of my own family. My sisters and brother-in-laws are here today. Uh, and all that my family meant for me, for the kind of education I received from both the school sisters of Notre Dame and Sister Kathleen is here today, the Sisters of Mercy and Sister Charlotte Kerr is here as well. And of course, I owe a lot to the Pratt Library. The Pratt Library really played a tremendous, tremendous role in my life. First of all, you all know the story of Enoch Pratt, who in 1882 gave a million bucks to establish a library. Could you imagine in 1882 what a million dollars was worth? Now, a guy named Johns Hopkins down the street, a brother Quaker, was establishing a hospital. But Enoch Pratt wanted to also open up the doors to the new immigrants who were coming and to new, newly freed African Americans so that they could have access to books and the literacy. Enoch Pratt, when he opened the library, said, my library shall be for all, rich and poor. No distinction of race and color. Imagine how radical that was then. And when properly accredited, can take out books as long as they handle them carefully and return them. Well, Carla Hayden says the same thing. We love Mr. Pratt. In 1886, 120-some years ago, he established the Canton Branch, Branch 4, on the corner of O'Donnell Street and Elwood Avenue. That was my library, my library. And for me, going to a little Catholic elementary school, Sacred Heart of Jesus, School Sisters of Notre Dame, when I got my first library card, I saw this as a hot ticket, my window on the world. And in fact, in my life, there were three cards that meant so much to me. One was my library card that gave me a window on the world. The other was my driver's license that gave me access to the world when my mom and dad would let me have the wheels. And then the third was my voter registration card that was going to allow me to participate and shape the world. For me, walking down to the Enoch Pratt was a really big deal. And it was there that I could check out books and take me to places where I'd only dreamed. I went to Switzerland and had a girlfriend, a little friend named Heidi. I even got a chance to ride a horse with someone named Black Beauty. And little did I know that I would come to be a member of the Intelligence Committee and actually be in charge of the budget for FBI when I read those wonderful Nancy Drew stories. <laughs> so for me, the library meant a lot. But again, the library always worked to be accessible, which is true of the mission today. The library, because Canton was a long walk from Highland Town, actually had a bookmobile that would come on Friday nights. So it was a big thing to go up and check out books at the bookmobile. And it was across the street from the Grand Movie, which is now across the street from the Southeast Anchor Library, the latest and the greatest in the Enoch Pratt constellation. And we are really grateful to have it. 
when Tony Keene and I were fighting the political bosses and trying to stop a highway, one of the things that we fought for was for a new library in Canton. I mean, a new library in Highland Town. And later, when I was in high school, Sister Kathleen, though the nuns kept an eye on me at Asqua Street, I couldn't wait to come up to the Central Library. Was it because I was mesmerized and wanted to ring Gone with the Wind and be like Scarlett O'Hara? No. It was across the street from the old Calvert Hall High School. <laughs> well, what happened in the stacks will stay in the stacks. Um, we'll, we'll let that one go. But as you can see, the library meant a lot. I tell this story because when you hear about us, and I'm going to now move to talking about the women in the Senate, the fact is, is that it's local institutions, public schools, public libraries, access to information, access to an opportunity ladder, access that where a government is on your side and enables you to be you. And I'm just so grateful that I had access to one of the great libraries. When I came to the United States Senate, uh, when I came to the United States Senate, uh, it, I was the first woman, first Democratic woman elected in her own right. You might be interested to know that when I arrived in 1986, though there had been other Democratic women who served in the United States Senate, none had been elected in their own right. It meant some poor guy had to die for us to get the job. Also, in all of American history, from 1776 to 1996, 220 years, only 15 women had served in the United States Senate. In 220 years, only 15 women had served. One served one day, Rebecca Felton. Her husband died. She showed up, signed the book, took the oath, voted president, picked up his pension, and left. Not bad. <laughs> I had loftier ambitions. Um, but in all of the 39, and then when I arrived in the Senate, as I said, only 15 women had served. Right this minute, there are now 17 women who serve. Uh, of that, 13 are Democratic women, and four are Republican women. Of the 17 of us, there are four states that each have two women. They're coastal states. There is Washington State with Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray, California with Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein. And then on the East Coast, you have two Republican women, my very dear friend, Olympia Snow and Sue Collins, and just a wink down the highway is New Hampshire, where we have Jean Shaheen and our newest senator, Senator Kelly Ayotte. So that's the kind of data. But for us, what happened was, the, so that's, the, that's kind of the historical nuggets. From 1986 to 1992, when I arrived, there was only one other woman in the United States Senate, and that was Senator Nancy Kassebaum, a very dear and wonderful friend. But though I said, though I was all by myself, I was never alone. We had, it was the great guys of the Senate that were a tremendous help to me. 
I wish Senator Paul Sarbanes were here today because he was my Senate colleague. And I owe a lot to Senator Sarbanes, who taught me the ways of the Senate. He taught me the official rules of the Senate. He taught me those invisible powers and hallways of the Senate. And he was of tremendous help. And though I'll emphasize what we, the women, have done, we have done it because we have worked together with men. And you need to always keep in your mind that men of quality never fear women who seek equality. And many of the great things that we were able to do in the Senate is because we had the support of great guys. And I put Senator Sarbanes up there as, as, as my number one. And in fact, my two other great friends were Senator Kennedy and Senator Tom Harkin. When I arrived in 1986, you'll be shocked to know that women were not included in the research protocols at NIH. The famous study of take an aspirin a day, keep a heart attack away, was done on 10,000 male medical students. Not one woman was included. When they did their famous longitudinal study, on the effects of aging, a 25-year longitudinal study on the natural processes of aging, not one woman was included. Now, you know, Dick Cheney and I age rather differently. And I think, well, at least I'm not in an undisclosed location. But you find that shocking. Today, that seems like, wow. And then my colleague, Senator Nancy Kassebaum, and I teamed up with Senator Pat Schroeder, Olympia Snow, and Connie Morella. We went out to NIH, and we demanded to meet with all 13 head of the institutes where we wanted to know, was this good science or just bad sexual stereotyping? The day we pulled up to demand answers and to try to move the scientific agenda so that all of us were included in the research protocols, George Bush the Elder appointed Bernadine Healy as the head of NIH. And things began to change. Things began to develop a momentum. And during those years from when Bernadine was head of NIH and George Bush was in the White House, working with Ted Kennedy and Tom Harkin, we established the Office of Women's Health at NIH, and then included where women would be not only included in the protocols, but there would be this stop where we could do that research. And you'll be interested to know, during that time, Dr. Healy called me and then said, Senator Barb, I want to do a longitudinal study on women, and I also want to take a look at hormone replacement therapy. Can you help me? A word to Ted, some work in the appropriations with Tom Harkin. The money was there. And now hormone replacement therapy has, and the treatment of women has changed. And breast cancer rates have gone down 15%. When I talked, when I talked to Bernadine Healy, about this, when we read the final results, she said, you know, it shows when Democrats and Republicans work together, when men and women work together, we can save lives a million at a time. Isn't that fantastic? So we were working pretty well, and then in 1992, a debacle happened on Capitol Hill. George Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to be on the Supreme Court. You remember the terrible wrenching 
awful hearings that occurred when uh, Professor Hill was minimized and demonized in the chambers of the United States Senate. The guys just didn't get it about sexual harassment. It caused an incredible backlash. And in 1992, not only did Bill Clinton and a dynamic first lady named Hillary come to Washington, but new groups of women came to Washington. And they had names like Barbara Boxer and Patty Murray and Carol Mosley Braun. And in that year of the women, we've got a whole new group of Democratic women and Republican women. One, a wonderful Republican from Texas, K. Bailey Hutchinson. And as the year went on, and politics got very prickly, and in 1994, there was the Republican takeover, and it was as bad as it is now. It was so intense and so ugly and just nasty that Senator Hutchinson came to me and said, what can we do about this? And I said, we can. She said, do you think we can establish a zone of civility with the women? And the answer was yes. So we, the women, Senator Hutchinson and I, began to convene dinners. Now that sounds like nothing, but all we do in Congress now is we break knuckles. We don't break bread together. We try to see who we can stick it to rather than who we can stick up for. And so we began these monthly dinners over 15 years ago that continue today. At these dinners, we took a, first of all, we had three rules. No memos, no staff, no leaks. What we hoped would come out of those dinners would be that we would have relationships, that we would come to know each other, and that we would respect each other. And in respecting each other, that we could work together. And you know what? It has worked. It has absolutely worked. And though we disagree, we say we have to be able to be free to disagree, but we are free without being disagreeable. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Kay Bailey and I disagree from each other. She's from Texas. I'm from Maryland. We have different views on the budget, on energy policy. We have another wonderful Republican, Senator Lisa Murkowski tall and lanky from a red state. I'm Mikulski. We get each other's phone calls, but sometimes they aren't always the same. Alaska, let me tell you, she, she loves to drill for gas and oil at Anwar. I believe you should only drill in a dentist chair, and certainly not off of the coast of Ocean City. So though we disagree, we disagree without being disagreeable. And because we do disagree, we do not have a caucus, but we are a force. And when I say we are a force, one of the areas that we have concentrated on is the area of women's health. Working together, we've been able to raise the money for breast cancer research by over... Uh, we, have, we have taken breast cancer research that when we started this was less than $100 million to now the money going into breast cancer research is now $700 million. We've also <laughs> taken a look on the economic empowerment of women. We don't want to privatize Social Security. We don't want to take, turn Medicare into a voucher program. And then 
when it came to getting equal pay for equal work, we did disagree. We agreed on the goals, but we disagreed on the methods. When Barack Obama wanted to keep a campaign promise and said, let's pass the Lilly Ledbetter bill, they gave it to me to move in the Senate. And as I moved it, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson was opposed to it. She had a different method. She offered nine separate amendments. I debated them, whacked them off, and at the end of the day, my amendment, my bill passed. Kay Bailey actually voted for it, and we showed that you could debate disagree, and at the end of the day, have a glass of Chardonnay. People still talk about that. People still talk about that. And then during the famous health care debate, I offered an amendment on preventive health care. The Congressional Budget Office said it would cost too much. It's so that we could do the kind of testing and so on, primarily for women. Um, though we were going to include men as well. And when I went to the floor to offer that amendment, it's when they were trying to take our mammograms away, they were saying these services were too expensive. Senator Lisa Murkowski fought me on this. She wanted to turn everything over to the insurance companies. We had a disagreement. And, but the debate, again, went on for three hours. Three hours. Back and forth. Back and forth. But the Senate was mesmerized because we did it with intellectual rigor, facts, a little sense of humor, and at the end of the day, I'm happy about it because my amendment won. But that's not because about winning or losing, but it can show that in today's world that we could go ahead and do this. These are the kinds of things that we then worked on and we worked on together. We don't always know how some of these things will turn out, when Hillary came to the Senate, everybody said, oh, wow, is she going to come with entourages and superstars and so on? And they wondered what it was going to be like. Well, Hillary was a great senator, the way she's a great secretary of state. And one of the things that we did through these dinners was to show that we really cared for each other. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson, in her late 40s, married but unable to have children, decided to adopt the children. Guess who threw her a shower? The liberal Democrat named Hillary threw one for a conservative Republican named Kay. We had a fantastic time, as women do at those showers. It was a very special night for that shower. It was on September 10th, 2001. The very next day, New York was in flames, and we stood together, not as women at a dinner, but we stood together as Americans on the steps of the capital of the United States. This shows how we do come together at times of great, great tension. I could go on and tell lots of stories about this, but what I wanted you to see is how we've tried to work together with all of our numbers to be able to change history. But now, as we look ahead, uh, just a quick word about the issues, and then I'll take questions and answers. The quick word, I mean, what I, the... Um, the guys like to work on big macro issues, big macro, big budget numbers. And now, once again, we have money for war, but not money for Head Start, okay? We have money for Libya, but we've cut NIH by $1 billion. We have money to send 
cruise missiles at a million dollars apiece, but we've cut Head Start by a billion dollars. So, look, we might have to honor our international commitments, but why is it we always have money for shock and awe and for war and not for these boys and girls here? How about the way Gompers talked about, we need less bombs and we need more books. Do you agree with that? So what we, the women, tried to do is bring work not only on the macro issues, because we're on every committee, but to work on the macaroni and cheese issues. We believe that you have to bring the sensibilities of families to the United States Congress. We know we need a more frugal government. We already have our checklist for change. We know that our number one issue has to be our own people, that we have to educate our own people. We have to have the best public schools in the United States of America, and we have to be able to have choice for those who want to go to charter schools or other educational venues. We know that. We need to make sure that we have access to higher education and be able to afford that and to be able to freeze our tuitions and make sure that we have opportunities to be able to make sure that tuition is available and affordable so that boys and girls can get the education that they need. And we know that we need to also begin to put tax breaks and again, and to be able to help you send your kid to college rather than the tax breaks where we're sending jobs overseas. There are many of us who say to President Obama, keep your promise, wind down the war in Iraq, wind down the war in Afghanistan, bring the troops back home, bring the jobs back home, bring the money back home. Let's make sure we're investing so that we have jobs in the United States of America. An unemployment rate of 9% is unacceptable. When these children sing the song of America the Beautiful, they should see what Langston Hughes called about. America needs to remember what America was, where we were not only the home of the free and the home of the brave, but it's where everybody gets a chance to follow their dream, to be able to have a job, to be able to make a contribution, to be able to make a difference. That's why I ran for a fifth term in the United States Senate. It was not about my job. It was about so that they could have a job. It was not about my future or being in the history books. It was about their future and so that they could have a chance to shape history in the next generation. And this is why, as we look at where the women of the Senate are, we want to keep working on those macaroni and cheese issues. Yes, we have to reduce the deficit and the debt. We understand that. But just like any family that they know, that while they're keeping an eye on their household budget, they will move heaven and earth for their children, and they will move anywhere so that they could have a job. Well, we need to make sure we're willing to move the forces of the United States government to make sure these children and our young people have a future. This is why I'm going to be in the United States Senate. This is where the women are talking about the macaroni and cheese issues. This is why we hope we're going to be able to make a, a, make a true difference. And for me, one of the things I just want to close with was something that George Bernard Shaw wrote when he said, I'm convinced that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. 
It's a splendid torch, which I have a hold of for a moment, and I want to make it as burn as brightly as possible and turn it over to future generations so that they might light the way for their time, which is now. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take questions. Hello. Um, I have a two-part question. Um, as an unemployed person for almost a year now, uh, despite education and experience, I'm curious as to the, the Senator's specific um, suggestions for workable solutions to bring jobs back, um, both ones that have been cut in the U.S., ones that have been overseas, and ones that could be created, can be accomplished. And Part B, um, as a Gen Xer, um, I'd also like to know what you think are workable solutions to ensure that all generations that contribute to Social Security get all of their contributions back. Well, first of all, let's talk about jobs, okay? That is, I think, should be our number one priority. And first of all, I want to, I think all of us mourn what has happened to someone who's become a great ally in Japan and uh, the um, terrible consequences there. But as we look around over the world, we've got to look also at ourselves. So what about jobs? I think, number one, let's end the tax breaks for sending jobs overseas. We actually give subsidies to be able to send jobs overseas. So number one, let's end that. Number two, let's look at where we can reclaim ourselves in manufacturing. I believe manufacturing is undergoing, beginning to undergo a renaissance, but we're going to change that. So here in Baltimore, we're looking at working with Governor O'Malley a couple of things. One, in traditional jobs on our port. Now, I went and got an earmark. Yes, that so-called word. But our port will be dredged, and we'll be able to have the new ships that are coming through the Panama Canal. So we're going to have people work on the dock, and be able to provide back office services and so on to do that. We're also working with General Motors where we are going to make the motors and the hydraulic plants for uh, our automobile industry. We used to employ 4,000 people at General Motors on Broning Highway. Now we have 500 in White Marsh, and we hope to go to 1,200. But the real future will lie in new fields, one of which is in biotech the other is, here we are at the library, Infotech and cybersecurity and, and BRAC. So we brought military jobs here, remember our bases. Number two, what we need to then also continue our investments where our jobs are going to be in fields like biotech and cybertech and so on. Now, they're starting now. They're actually starting now. Um, but for, that's where the future will lie. In terms of Social Security... Well, I'm against the privatization of Social Security. Uh, I don't think... I think Social Security is a social contract, and it should be a guaranteed benefit, not a guaranteed gamble. And um, uh, I believe that Social Security is solvent for the next 35 years, and we do need to reform it. But any reforms should go to keeping so Social Security solvent and not for balancing the budget or drawing down our debt. Any reforms for Social Security, okay, like raising what 
um, the level of what people put into it. Right now, you're capped at over 100,000. Raise that up. Um, the, whatever it is should go back into Social Security. Uh, there's a big fight going to go on. You're going to hear that solving our debt and our deficit, you have to go to Social Security. Anything related to Social Security should stay with Social Security. Do you agree with that? Tony, are you, are you we, Should I call in the people? Or? Well, we have a very special guest here that is also making history, um, and especially during Women's History Month, and we're so pleased that she wanted to be here today. So, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. Oh, Lordy Lord. Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, please stand up and be recognized. Now, my question is, looking at this woman, what fool said Baltimore has ugly people in it, the ugliest? <laughs> now, I'm serious. I will put this gal up against any mayor, even in places like, you know, South America. Thank you very much. Would you like to? Hey, Mayor, I'm glad to see you. I'm up after you. Hello, hello, hello. Good to see you. Are you going to talk to you? After, your, after you take all the hot questions. Hot questions. I take the softballs. <laughs> okay. I want to thank you very personally, Barbara, for everything, Senator, Senator Barbara, for everything that you have done. You have been brought up from the ranks. You have not been born with a silver spoon. And I appreciate everything that you have done. And I hope that you will continue fighting our people in Congress and sticking with the average working worker. Thank you very much. My question to you is that when do you envision a female president? That's a hot one. Well, I envision one in 08. Uh, I was a Hillary supporter, though, of course, I worked in the Senate uh, with uh, Senator Obama. Uh, I think, um, but I think that by the time, let's see, presuming President Obama's reelected, 2016, um, I would say 2024. 2024. And why? Because there is this whole other group of young women coming along. Women you don't even know. Women in the House uh, like our, and who've come to the Senate, like our own Senator Gillibrand from New York. You know, there are women in their 40s that are up-and-coming leaders, like our mayor, um, like Congresswoman uh, Gifford. No one knew Congresswoman Gifford until that melancholy day in Tucson. But when you look at her record, she's up and coming. And when you look at what I call the Gifford girls, she has a whole circle of wonderful, talented women in their 40s. And they're going to be a different generation, which you need for a new century. So I think in 2024, they're going to be the right age. They're going to have the right experience. We'll let Barack finish his two terms. We'll let somebody else take a breather, and then we're going to come roaring in, and we're going to finish the century with a bang. Because once we get there, it'll become usual and customary to see us there. So. 
Can you, can you tell me, has there been any outreach to the women? Where are you? Oh, there you are. To the women and, uh, of Egypt and Tunisia since the revolution? Yes. Secretary Clinton, through our very own Judith McHale, um, who works at the State Department, um, that there are outreach to women in terms of empowerment and um, organization and so on. We're very optimistic in Egypt because the revolution there is different than what's going on in others. The effort in Egypt was led by a different generation. They were middle-class people who had had a chance for uh, an education, but not for opportunity. Remember, in Arab countries, over 60% of the population is under the age of 30. So that Twitter revolution, the Jasmine Revolution, was led by people who uh, aspired for a secular government, uh, meritocracy, and they're, they're wired into the world. So for them, it'll be no turning back as they try to move their country to a modern economy, a modern political system, and the women were part of the revolution. That, I think, will happen there. But when you look at some of the other countries, uh, the dismal state of women uh, continues. And this is why I'm very frustrated with Afghanistan. You know, we had to go into Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda came out of Afghanistan uh, and went into the World Trade Center, um, and we had to use lethal force. But now in the 10 years that we've been there, Karzai continues to engage in corruption. He is for Shia law. Women are back in the burqas and so on. So after all of our work, we're not sure where that's going. So sometimes political change doesn't mean political power for the people on the bottom. And that's why just changing... The leadership sometimes doesn't change, completely change the direction. Could I just comment about Libya for a second? I'm very pleased that the Arab League, that when we went, we're not taking the lead. It's time for other countries to do that. And we're doing it legally through a UN resolution and the Arab League inviting us to participate. So we're not acting like a post-colonial power. But we do not know who these rebels are. We know who Gaddafi is, and he's a bum, just like Saddam Hussein was a bum. But the enemy of my enemy might necessarily be my friend. And so we're not sure who this new leadership would be, uh, and I'm not saying keep Gaddafi, but we've got to be very careful in what we're doing in Libya, I think. Uh, Senator, I'm interested in women's issues locally. I took a course last year at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. The course was called Violence Against Women. And I learned that in the metropolitan area here in Baltimore, every 15 seconds a woman is abused and that every emergency room in our area assumes that every time a woman comes in, she is there to be treated for domestic violence until proven otherwise. And I think that's a horrendous picture of what's going on here. Our big obstacle seems to be the judges who seem to think that domestic violence means, well, he was just teasing her. I wonder, what can we do to come out of the dark ages? Well, I think we are coming out of the dark ages, and, uh, and perhaps 
uh, Mayor Rawlings-Blake would like to comment on this. She and I have worked very closely on this issue, and I'm very proud of her efforts. First of all, we acknowledge that this is a terrible situation, uh, and it's terrible for the person who's uh, victimized. Uh, many years ago, I was a child abuse worker uh, for the Department of Social Services uh, and saw so much of this up close and personal. This is why I joined with Senator, then-Senator Joe Biden to establish a federal framework for bringing resources to state and local governments for domestic violence. One, for shelters to get people out of the home in safety, hotlines to be able to respond, and then training for both the police force and other law enforcement. We believe that this has had a tremendous positive impact on our community, but we need to know more, and this goes exactly uh, to the training. One of the things that we do know with the economic downturn, uh, there is so much frustration in the home, and very often good people experiencing bad things take out their frustration on those we love. This is why I believe in community intervention through local communities and really, quite frankly, through faith-based organizations where people can intervene with, through institutions that people trust. Mayor, did you want to comment on that? Here, I think you need to use the microphone. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Senator. We spent a lot of time talking about the issue of domestic violence and uh, violence against women generally, and it caused me to uh, to work with uh, my uh, senior team to develop what we call DV stat or D uh, domestic violence stat, where we are tracking domestic violence cases and making sure that all of the I's are um, dotted and the T's are crossed. So if someone is not supposed is in, has been involved in uh, domestic violence and they're not supposed to have access to guns, that we're tracking that, that, that they have the right um, protective orders in place and that we know what's going on with these individuals so uh, women and families can be safe. So it's uh, through working uh, with Senator Mikulski and, and really getting a, a a keen understanding of what it means to um, not, just, not just talk about uh, domestic violence, but all types of um, uh, violence against women, because we, there's, far too often it's been swept under the, the rug. And I know uh, from my experience in government, uh, when it was discovered that we were um, not doing what we should or could do when it comes to uh, sexual assault, and we took a hard look at the way we um, we conducted business and reformed um, the way we investigated um, and 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 the way that uh, we investigated uh, sexual assault and the way that we made a determination about <clears throat> whether or not a case could go forward and totally restructured it and made sure that the rights of women uh, were protected and they felt safe coming forward. So it's a comprehensive uh, view, and I'm, I'm proud to have a partner like the senator who makes sure that we're, um, you know, we're, we have all of the areas that affect violence against women and, and, and therefore the family um, at the forefront of our attention. Thank you. But, Mayor, you know, you've been an activist to, even before you came into holding political office. Isn't it one of our problems and for many of our boys and girls and families that they see violence as a way of resolving conflict? And we, we've got to do a lot about violence, one of which is in our schools, 
uh, and the whole intervention, for example, in bullying, to really even show children that you can resolve conflict uh, without really beating each other up and doing mean and ugly things, and then how even in the community, through a lot of the things that we do, that violence isn't the way to solve these problems? We, we think about, it. I think you're making a great point, and we forget about the damage that's caused when children uh, live uh, with violence as an everyday um, circumstance. I attended, I uh, visited a uh, workforce training program uh, about a week ago, and as a part of the, the training program, they do group sessions. Now, I'm, I don't know if the kids know that they're in therapy sessions. They call it group talk. Uh, but they're therapy sessions, and the, this is an organization that's in uh, a handful of cities uh, throughout the country, and the um, director of the program said out of all of the, the cities that they work with, they have more um, young people with, uh, that are dealing with um, exposure to trauma, violence and trauma um, in Baltimore City. And it's because, you know, even though we have had, um, you know, nation-leading progress in reducing violence, we still are a much too violent city. And the impact uh, that we're having, if we don't uh, acknowledge that and start to deal with that, we're going to have the, the – um, we'll be paying the price for generations. One more question, and the um, mayor is going to say a few words, and then I'd like to take a special privilege and ask Senator Moskalski about pants. Thank you. Good afternoon, Senator, Mayor. Senator, you don't remember me the years have passed. You taught me at what was then the Community College of Baltimore back in the 70s. Yes, indeed. Yes, you were wonderful. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I knew you were a teacher that had it going on. It was wonderful, and I thank you so much. I'm, I'm standing because my sisters and I, we have a family group, and we are members of the Recording Academy, the organization that produces the Grammys. We'll be in D.C. on April 13th and 14th for uh, Advocacy Day, Grammys on the Hill. I want to... Okay. Yes, I wanted to mention to you, I don't know if it's come across your desk, but we would really like to ask you to take a special look at the Performance Rights Act. It's the act that allows the artists to receive compensation from their records being played on the radio. There have been a lot of public service announcements saying that the pie isn't big enough because right now the proceeds go to the publisher and the writers. Thank you so much. We'd just like you to ask, uh, pay special attention to it. Well, you know, since I've joined the Hall of Fame with uh, Billy Holiday, uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Senator, uh, people are wondering, Senator, um, I'm right here oh, by you. I snuck in, I snuck around because um, I heard you talk one time about the impact of coming into the Senate, and you had great impact. But there was one thing that was just kind of interesting about when you came and you wore pants. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. 
Well, in the 1950s, the Senate had a dress code. Men had to wear black suits and white shirts, and they've since relaxed that. But men have to wear jackets, shirts, and ties. And even Ben Nighthorse Campbell, uh, one of our Native Americans who joined the Senate, couldn't wear one of those bolo-looking things. It was a big thing. Then I found, then one day, I, it was one of those rainy, awful days, I wanted to wear slacks. They said, you can't do that. It's against the code. I said, I haven't seen any, so anyway. I said I was going to wear slacks on the Senate floor, but we had to prepare. They had to go to the history books and see if it was a precedent. Well, Margaret Shea Smith didn't wear slacks. Claire, okay. So they had to go to the parliamentarian, the Senate historian. I had to get special permission from Bob Byrd. But the day I walked on, everybody went, (gasps) and I felt like I was walking on the moon. But it was one small step for womankind and a big step for Hillary and Barb and the other gals. Well, I am proudly following in your tradition with my pants, very, very proudly. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. It it is certainly my pleasure to be here with all of you uh, this afternoon. It's always a treat to hear from our great uh, senator, particularly as we celebrate Women's History Month. Uh, this is, you know, I just feel like we have so many things to be proud of in Baltimore and in Maryland, and I, I count Senator Mikulski as one of those um, people and things to be proud of. I have to t- uh, tell you that you have a fan in my household. My daughter is, didn't, we were watching uh, CNN or some news show, and they were talking about the race, um, Murkowski's race, and she was quite offended because she thought someone was running against you. <laughs> and she said, no, it's not, I said, it's, it's not, you, but Senator Mikulski is fine, she's safe, she's, she's okay, so you are, are, you are inspiring the next generation of uh, politicians, and she, I, I think she wants me to know that she has your back. <laughs> she's only seven. But she, she does definitely has your, your back. Senator Mikulski is often referred to as the hardest working woman in Congress, and I'm sure you know why. The fact is that the longest serving uh, woman in the United States Senate is not only from Maryland, but from Baltimore City. It is a source of tremendous pride. She broke down doors, blew out glass ceilings, and removed the roadblocks that once prevented women from holding public office. She made it possible for me and so many others to pursue their dreams of public service and win office based on priorities, not on gender. Thank you. You're truly a trailblazer, serving as a role model, as I mentioned, to my daughter, to me, and uh, to women, and and really men and women everywhere. And most importantly, uh, and I think this is one of the things we love about the senator most, uh, she did it all without compromising her strongly held beliefs and principles. Senator Mikulski is committed to service and improving the lives of others that she serves as well. I don't know if you talked about a lot of the the work that you did championing uh, women's rights when it comes to health, equal pay for equal work, making college affordable, and the uh, space program along with NIH, which has been an economic generator in in our region. 
<laughs> it's a source of jobs and innovation. And while helping the president pass health care reform, she fought to include provisions that would guarantee women. Did you talk about this in your speech? Well, I'm not going to go into it. You know what she did when it comes to um, making sure that women were protected um, in health care reform. You know, it is amazing to me when we uh, take a look around the country and see the common sense things that Senator Mikulski and so many others are fighting for. And we think about the fact that uh, domestic violence, <clears throat> excuse me, was considered a, a pre-existing condition in eight states. You know, and, and we're fighting for the common sense things. And, there, and, and you would think it would be a no-brainer, yet the, uh, your, your colleagues in the Tea Party seem to have a different sense of common sense. Um, right now, uh, Senator Mikulski is leading the fight in Washington to protect us all from the mindless austerity of the House Republicans, deep cuts to Head Start, to WIC, community development block grants, one-stop job centers, and many more hurtful cuts. They are trying to balance the budget on the backs of the working class, working Americans, many of whom are just getting back on their feet from the uh, Great Recession while working two and three uh, jobs. These cuts will not help working families in Baltimore, in Topeka, in Phoenix, or Oakland for that matter. In the coming weeks, I know that you will need our help and uh, as you support uh, the fight and take on the fight against the, uh, the, the terrible cuts that the, uh, the House Republicans are, are proposing, I, am, uh, I stand with you ready to fight, to protect families, to protect women, and to make sure that our country continues to, to move for you. Uh, standing here before you today in the, the presence of such a dynamic leader, um, you know, I, I, I get myself sometimes saddened by the fact that we're the only jurisdiction in the state that has a, a woman as the uh, executive. Of the, the uh, 24 jurisdictions, that's it, just me. Uh, and um, I have to tell you, it's sometimes a lonely trip to the U.S. Conference of Mayors when we go to leadership um, meetings. Uh, the state county executives are all male. And I know that there are a number of uh, phenomenal women across our great state with a vision and a passion and a commitment uh, to serve. But we have to do more to cultivate the opportunities and to help those with the skills uh, know that it's possible to, um, to work in public service to achieve the greatest good. So as a mother of a young daughter who I mentioned has the senator's back, I think it's important that we teach our daughters and our nieces and little sisters and young women that we know that they can be whatever and whoever they want to be, including an elected official. So I'm very proud, again, to be here with the senator. It's a great way to celebrate Women's History Month, uh, the great way to uh, reinforce the lessons that I was taught, uh, the lessons of public service, of leadership, and community engagement. Um, I'm proud to also be here with Dr. Hayden. Um, this is the work that the library is doing. Um, it, it is encouraging as we are moving out of this recession that I know that we have a strong library system led by a very strong woman who is committed to making sure that she uses the skills and the talents that she has outside of these walls and into the community. She agreed to be the uh, chair of my youth cabinet, and we're working hard to coordinate all of the services uh, that we have for young people to make sure that they're getting the best that we have. So I want to thank Dr. Uh, 
Dr. Hayden for all that she does. Again, thank you so much for celebrating our senator, remembering and honoring the work that she's doing as a, as a trailblazer for, for women um, everywhere. I, I see a few young women out in the, in the audience, and I think you have a few more little young sisters that have your back as well, Senator. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mayor, for those kind words, and you are really hip. Did, our mayor read her remarks off of her iPad, and now we're broadcast on, out on iPod. Well, goodbye to the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> but really, I'm very proud uh, to be, be from Baltimore. And, Mayor, you're doing an outstanding job. We look forward to working with you in every way to empower our people and to have a better future. Thank you very much, and thanks for coming today. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Madam Mayor. This, don't you agree this is quite a way to celebrate Women's History Month? And we invite all of you to the second floor to the Edgar Allan Poe Room for a reception where you can meet the senator and talk to her and Tony Keene. And we just are so pleased that you're here. Please join us on the second floor, and thank you for coming. <laughs>